Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah and Mary and Scott. It's a delight to be with everyone. Hello, everybody. Uh, I saw a friend of mine, Claire Press, uh, pop on the call, and I saw someone's from Blacksburg, Virginia. I went to Virginia Tech. Go Hokies. So I saw someone there from my alma mater. But um, uh, uh, I'd like to uh, thank everybody again for supporting Francis Tavern. It is my favorite place to visit New York City. I am so nerded out about it. Uh, whenever I'm in New York City, I visit. Uh, you all know the story. This is uh, Manhattan's oldest and probably most important historic site. And yes, not only Hamilton, but George Washington. Or since we're talking about Hamilton in the musical, let me say G. Wash. <laughs> As my college students calling. Yes, it's come to that. Um, yes, Washington visited. Uh, of course, you all know in December of 1783, his famous farewell was done right there. Uh, uh, in the building. So uh, when you're all in New York City, I encourage you all to visit this wonderful site. And uh, thank you for supporting uh, this this great museum. So um, let's get into this. So I've been a professor for uh, 30 years, even though I'm only 27. Um, <laughs> and um, I've always been a fan of Hamilton, uh, Washington, Franklin, the founders. And it's sort of a nerdy thing that historians do uh, you know, when you meet one another at conferences or when you're working together, people always go, OK, who is it, Hamilton or Jefferson? Who's your, who do you like? That's that nerdy thing that they do. And I would say for the first 25 years of my career, I was almost the only one that said Hamilton. My son, who's a junior in college, is named for Alexander Hamilton. But what's interesting is the last five years, all the time now, everybody says Hamilton. So uh, even if they're come lightly, I'm glad to see people are on the, uh, the Hamilton train. So um, our story, uh, and again, I love Q&A. That's my favorite part of these programs. So our story begins back in um, the late 1590s. There was something called the Edict of Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S. This is in the French uh, Empire, the French Kingdom, uh, by Henry V. And uh, what this was is it was a remarkable document because the Edict of Nantes was really one of the first of its kind to allow for religious freedoms, to allow for some basic freedoms and rights for minority groups. And this was unheard of uh, in the world. However, about a century later, 1685, there was uh, uh, Louis, the sun god, the sun king, revokes uh, the Edict of Nantes, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And wholesale persecution reigns throughout the French kingdom toward Jews, toward non-Catholics, uh, Huguenots, French Protestants. And consequently, there was a mass exodus of, of, of Jews and Huguenots and others fleeing oppression. And uh, they went all around the world. From uh, the late 1600s to the early 1500s, some folks fled to a six by nine mile island in the West Indies called Nevis or Nevis. Uh, and we're not 100% sure, but there's some evidence that uh, a fellow named Jean Fawcett, a Frenchman, they were Huguenots, uh, F-A-U-C, Fawcett. Jean Fawcett and his family fled uh, to uh, the island of Nevis. It was originally called Las Nieves. That's Spanish for the snows. Uh, now, you and I know it doesn't snow <laughs> in the island of Nevis. Uh, it was named by Christopher Columbus, who thought that he saw a giant snow-covered cloud, uh, excuse me, snow-covered mountain. What he saw was a cloud. 
but we all know Christopher Columbus was severely directionally challenged. <laughs> so it's probably not surprising. Anyways, after the island transferred to English hands, they changed it from Las Nieves to Nevis, and a lot of us now say Nevis. So Jean Fawcett, this uh, French Huguenot, uh, who's fleeing persecution, he and his family arrive in Nevis. And uh, he marries an English woman named Mary Uppington. That's unusual, a French and an English person. It gives you some sense of the more relaxed uh, atmosphere and environment in the West Indies, particularly in Nevis, because of all the refugees. Now, Jean Fawcett and Mary Uppington have, it appears, seven children. The island was in such a wretched state, overrun by diseases and piracy and slavery and periodic hurricanes, uh, that um, five of the seven children die young. Uh, so this is really difficult. Now, Jean Fawcett, it appears, is something of a philanderer uh, and a womanizer. So he may have very well had illegitimate children as well on the island. And his wife, Mary, does something that women simply did not do then. She left him. Okay, you go, girl. She left him and she takes her youngest daughter, whose name is Rachel. And we're not exactly sure how old she is, a teenager, uh, you know, maybe 16 or 17 or so. She takes Rachel and she flees the island and she goes to St. Croix, which is nearby, a Dutch island. And um, in St. Croix, um, uh, Mary seems to have a plan. And her plan is this. I live in Boca Raton, Florida. And if anybody knows anything about Boca Raton, this is very Boca. The plan is to marry her daughter into money, okay? It's also Manhattan, but it's very Boca. Um, so she's going to marry uh, her daughter, Rachel, into money. And um, she has uh, something going for her, and that is the few descriptions that survive of Rachel describe her not as attractive, but, I mean, she's Cleopatra. She's the Venus de Milo. She's an extraordinarily good-looking woman. So... Um, uh, the mother's going to use this around that same time uh, that the mother, Mary uh, Uppington Fawcett, announces that her young daughter, Rachel, is is ready to be courted. There's a Danish German Jew named Johann Michael Lavien. Uh, he was Sephardic. So Levine, uh, derivative of Levi, Levine, Sephardic, Lavien, uh, who arrives on the island. And Lavien, uh, there's one account of him that has him wearing you know, a red suit. So he was, he was pretty over the top himself. Um, and Lavienne announces that he too is ready to get married. It appears that Lavienne gave the impression that he was coming into money. It appears that Mary gave the impression that her daughter Rachel was coming into money. And therefore, they tricked one another and they get married. Now, uh, Rachel seems to not want to marry Lavienne. Um, we don't really know all the details. He was older than her, which is also very Boca. <laughs> so um, um, it could have been that he was a lot older than her. So uh, that's why she was opposed to it. Nonetheless, the two of them get married and it's a rough marriage. They have a child, Peter. Um, uh, but then shortly thereafter, Lavienne brings charges against Rachel. Uh, let's just say, uh, let me say this respectfully, since it's Francis Tavern, my favorite place to visit in New York City. Um, uh, Rachel was accused of being a practitioner of the world's oldest occupation. How's that? Uh, now, I don't think she was. Um, 
But uh, LaVien uh, testifies against his uh, wife, Rachel, who at this point is still a teenager, 18, 19, perhaps, maybe even 17. We're not exactly sure. So he testifies her, testifies against her that she had basically been sleeping around with everybody on the island. That's what he says. Uh, it's very, very doubtful. Um, and uh, Rachel is sent to prison. Now, she's sent to prison uh, in St. Croix, in uh, Christianstad, in the main fort there. If anybody's been to St. Croix, there's a lovely fort there, uh, colonial fort in Christianstad, in the dungeon, the basement, the dungeon of the fort. That's where the prison was. So this young girl, Rachel, gets sent to prison. Lavien takes his son, Peter, and basically skedaddles. Um, so my sense is that this probably should have been the end of Rachel. Think about it. Imagine the lack of hygiene. Imagine the diseases that must have tore through that dungeon. Uh, imagine the attacks from other prisoners, uh, the, the lack of medical attention. So this probably would have been the end of young Rachel Fawcett uh, Lavienne. However, she, cuts a, she gets a break. Um, the captain of the fort, his name is Bertram Denully, D-E-N-U-L-L-Y. Uh, and Captain Denully gets one look at his uh, new prisoner, and it appears that he falls head over heels for her. Uh, captain Denully, there's not hard evidence. You know, there's so much we don't know about this story, but there's some evidence that it appears that he visits her. Let me just say visits her in her prison cell. Um, she then tells him, I want you to move me out of this dungeon and move me into your house. So he moves her out of the dungeon and moves her into the house. I mean, this is just highly unusual. She comes into a little bit of money at this time. So if you put one and one together, it appears that she was, um, let's just say an entrepreneur and uh, perhaps charging Denali and using uh, her beauty to, uh, to find herself uh, financially secure and to get out of the dungeon. So he moves her into her home. This is how good looking Rachel Fawcett Lavienne was. Denali even moves her mother <laughs> into his home, Oy, right? So um, after a little while, Rachel says, look, I'm free, I'm leaving, no more house arrest. So she leaves. Now, Rachel Fawcett Lavienne is probably the most scandalous woman on the island of St. Croix. Uh, today, she'd be a Kardashian, okay? <laughs> uh, if you think about it, uh, her family was religious refugees. Um, she married a Jew in an even more anti-Semitic day and age. She was accused of being a prostitute. Um, she was put in prison. She may have slept with the warden to get out of the prison. She then abandons her husband and child and flees to another island. So um, basically a Kardashian. Um, so, uh, while she flees to another island, she goes to St. Kitts, uh, briefly, and there she meets a drunk Scot. His name is James. His family comes from a reasonable background in Scotland. They have a castle. They have minor titles. One might say lesser aristocracy, but this James, it appears that he is a ne'er-do-well, a drunk and can't hold a job down. Uh, he's an embarrassment to the father. So what fathers used to do back then is uh, they kicked their sons out of the house. Uh, James appears to have been kicked out of the country, and the family appears to have made a small investment for him in the West Indies, hoping that maybe he could do something with his life there. 
The other thing we know about James from a handful of accounts is he was not just a drunk and a loser, but very handsome and very charismatic. So James meets Rachel. It's basically the 1700s version of Bradgelina. <laughs> or uh, let me say Richard Burton and Liz Taylor for some of the audience, or for, let's say, some of the audience, maybe Beyonce and Jay-Z. Okay, so pick your pick your frame of reference. So basically, this beautiful woman, Rachel, and this really handsome guy, James Meat. Now they cannot marry uh, because back then in the islands, women did not have the legal right to divorce. And La Vienne had left Rachel without divorcing her. So um, uh, Rachel and uh, James shack up out of wedlock. So basically, she's even more scandalous now. Um, and they're basically thrown out of the island or chased out of the island. So Rachel moves back to um, uh, Nevis. She moves back to Nevis. And there in Nevis, she and James would get even more scandalous because she has two kids out of wedlock, both of them sons. The firstborn would be named for the father, James, and the secondborn is Alexander Hamilton. There we go. I know that uh, Mary was beginning to think, I hope Dr. Watson knows that this is a lecture on Hamilton, not on loose women in uh, the 1700s here or prisons. But uh, so there's where Alexander, ah, you know, who knows? So this is where Alexander Hamilton comes from. Uh, the drunk Scott was James Hamilton, thus the last name. Scottish, so Hamilton, Scottish, and French. Uh, and I put a PowerPoint together for everybody. Let me show you a couple images and we'll move on. There's the island of Nevis, or Nevis, six by nine miles. Uh, and it probably looks something today like it did back then, not very populated. You can go to St. Kitts and jump on a ferry and uh, travel over to uh, Nevis. Here's the fort where his mother, Rachel, was uh, imprisoned. And she was in the dungeon there in, in Christianstad in St. Croix. And that's where it all began uh, for her. So here's just a map to give you some sense, if you'll pardon a professor. <laughs> There's not a quiz after, so don't worry. Uh, there in the middle of the screen, you can see St. Kitts and Nevis uh, and so forth. And St. Croix, not far away. So there's our uh, story. This is um, considered to be one of the early, and we're not sure how legitimate it is, but uh, one of the earliest uh, images of A. Ham or Alexander Hamilton for those of us over 50. <laughs> so um, you'll recognize the famous profile from uh, the $10 bill, of course. And you, you, we all know what a handsome fellow he was. Of course, it helps when your parents are Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. So um, at any rate, so Rachel, um, the mother, what happens is a few years later, her boyfriend, James Hamilton, leaves the family and he wanders throughout the southern uh, Caribbean. He ends up in Trinidad at one point. He almost dies in a slave uprising and largely disappears from the history books. So Rachel would eventually be a single mother raising these two boys. And you can imagine the grief that she encountered because of the anti-Semitic hate and because of her alleged reputation and so forth and so on. Now, um, Hamilton is a bookish kid. And Rachel seems to realize early on that her son is a genius. And I don't use that term lightly. I think too many people throw it around uh, willy-nilly. I'll reserve it for the likes of a Ben Franklin, but I'll put Hamilton in that category. Now, the problem is Hamilton cannot go to school. 
He cannot go to school and we don't know why. Maybe because his mother had married a Jew, maybe because of his mother's reputation, maybe because she was living with a drunk who and they were not married. Maybe the answer is D, all of the above. But Hamilton can't go to school. So by present day parlance, Rachel homeschools little Alexander. Now, what's remarkable is Rachel probably has the largest library in that island, somewhere between 34 and 39 books. That's not a lot by today's standards. But remember, we didn't have Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble back then. How would somebody get books on such a remote little tropical island? So uh, what we know is that Rachel uh, uh, was friendly, let's just put it that way, with a lot of the shipping captains that visited the island, okay? Uh, this allowed her to make money and uh, use her beauty to uh, make a living. She was a, a, a single woman in an unbelievably sexist day and age on, in the remote corners of the world doing what she needed to do to stay alive. So I've never judged her. Uh, but if you think of the ships that would stop in the island, this is basically the equivalent of the Fortune 500 today. These are the equivalent of multinational corporations stopping in the island to pick up and drop off sugarcane or molasses or rum or human uh, chattel in terms of slavery and tropical fruit and so forth. So um, my guess is that Rachel got the books from her business dealings, and I'll put that in finger quotes, her business dealings with uh, the shipping captains. I imagine her going on board the ship and then looking on the bookshelf and saying, uh, you know, is Plato something we need to be reading? <laughs> and then I'll be taking that book with me. What we know is Hamilton had talked about uh, some of the philosophers and the books that influenced him when he was young. It would be Plato's Republic, Aristotle's On Politics, uh, Locke's Second Treatise on Government, which is what Jefferson would have open on his desk during the 17 days he spent in Philadelphia drafting the Declaration, Hobbes's Leviathan, collections of Shakespearean plays. Uh, we know Hamilton was something of a poet, uh, as well as Alexander Pope poetry. Uh, and as a kid, Hamilton wrote poetry, actually published it in newspapers. So it's, I think, entirely fitting that a rap uh, Broadway musical with just wonderful lyricism uh, honors Alexander Hamilton today because he was a poet. So um, Hamilton's mother uses these books to homeschool to educate her son. What's interesting is the first four books I mentioned to you were about 50% of my PhD comprehensive exams. Here's the difference. Hamilton's reading them at nine and 10. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, this is off the charts. Um, the other thing is we know Hamilton's mother spoke several languages. We're not sure to what degree of fluency, and all these unknowns are just infuriating, but we know she spoke several languages. Um, it probably helped her with her business dealings with some of those shipping captains. As I wrote in one source, she probably knew how to say $2 in French, Prussian, Portuguese. <laughs> it helped for business. Who knows? Who knows? But um, at any rate, so she imparts all these languages on Hamilton. What we know is the adult Hamilton is multilingual, some degree of fluency in seven languages, and he would soon add an eighth language to his repertoire. Hamilton gets a uh, break. The break he gets is there's a Jewish community on the island of Nevis. An early census taken by the British government around this time has, get this, the Jewish community was one out of every three whites. 
because they didn't always take a census of slaves or freed blacks. One out of every three whites. So this is a pretty robust Jewish community. Most of them Sephardic, most of them shippers and traders, and most of them refugees. So the Jewish community allows Hamilton to go to the Hebrew school in the island's synagogue. So Hamilton would add Hebrew as an eighth language. What we know is that the later Hamilton had close relationships with Jews in New York City and Philadelphia and elsewhere, and knew some degree of Hebrew. Uh, his, uh, his youngest son, Philip, with one L, named for the oldest son, Philip, who died in a duel, who was named for Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, uh, had once written that Hamilton made the children uh, recite the Decalogue in Hebrew. Uh, so Hamilton passed along his love of language and his reverence for the Jewish community. So it's the Jewish community that educated Hamilton. There is a, a headmistress at the school. Hamilton refers to her as the Jewess. Now, by today's standards, that may sound pretty darn bad. But by the 1700s, I assure you, that's like saying, ma'am, your honor, chancellor, headmaster. It was a term of, uh, of distinction. So Hamilton had appears to have reverence for the, the Jewess, the headmaster who educates him. She appear, apparently takes him under her wing as well. And she, along with Hamilton's mother, recognized this young boy's genius. Uh, he's outgrown the island. What are you going to do when you grow up? Uh, and Hamilton is an intensely ambitious kid. This is a kid that wants to change world history. This is a kid that is to the point of being arrogant uh, or audacious in terms of his ambition, which is quite something thinking about his unbelievably common um, pedestrian uh, upbringing. So um, things are looking okay for Hamilton. He's going to school, he is a benefactor, but then the mother gets the uh, notice. She has to go back to St. Croix. Why? Lavienne shows back up and Lavienne met another woman. So now he wants to divorce Rachel so he can marry the other woman. So Rachel has to go back to St. Croix. Can you imagine, can you imagine the feeling of despair she must have had to go back to a place where people probably spit on her in public, threw rotten food on her. She was in prison. You know, she had a reputation. Whatever her two little boys did not know about their mother's reputation, it was about to be news at 10, news at 11, right? So she goes back to St. Croix and she's given a divorce by Lavienne finally. Uh, this uh, seems to prompt Rachel to open up a new business. And that is she opens up a supply business. She supplies the shipping captains that comes to the island and, and to come to the island. She does pretty well in this business. After all, she already knew the shipping captains. She does pretty well with this business. Rachel is an impressive woman. Uh, she seems to have a remarkable business acumen. We, we can infer that she was strong and tough. She was smart. She was well-read. She spoke many languages. And imagine how difficult it was for a single woman at that time in that particular part of the world. Her business partner is none other than Alexander Hamilton, um, who helps her with the financials in the business. Hamilton handles all the office work in the financials, which is extraordinary. He's about 10, 11, uh, 12 years old at the particular time. Now, things were finally looking up. She's making money. They have a roof over their head. Hamilton's employed. He has uh, books and a library. But then a yellow fever epidemic strikes the island. It kills roughly half the population. Both Hamilton and his mother got sick. And as they rapped in the musical, Hamilton survived. He got better, but his mother went quick. 
Uh, so Rachel dies. Now Alexander and James are orphaned. And here we have, uh, whoops, um, there's a tomb. This was not erected when Rachel died. The tourist folks on the island subsequently put it up because they know everybody would want to go see the tomb. What we know is that Rachel could not be buried in the church cemetery, perhaps because of her reputation, perhaps because she had married a Jew. And Alexander and James find a tree with a beautiful view overlooking the ocean and they bury their mother. Uh, Hamilton appears to have presided over that. So what a difficult thing for Hamilton. Now, at this particular point, he's about 12 or 13. He's essentially homeless, orphaned. Uh, he's sick dying of yellow fever. I think if you replay history 10 times, eight or nine out of the 10, Hamilton would probably die. Uh, he's taken in by a man named Stevens. Uh, he's also offered a home by a distant relative named Lytle. Uh, when Hamilton moves in with his relative, the man commits suicide. Uh, as they say in the musical, moved in with the cousin, the cousin committed suicide, left him with nothing but ruined pride, something new inside. So. Hamilton is uh, struggling. I, I promised Mary maybe I'd wrap a word or two. So uh, at any rate, so there I could put a check next to that. I'm hoping that's the first rap, partial rap ever at Francis Tavern. Uh, I don't know. I'm quite certain it would be the last. But uh, at any rate, so um, Hamilton uh, gets another break. There's a shipping company named Beekman and Kruger, Kruger with a C. It's a Dutch, uh, Danish uh, conglomerate. Anyways, they know about Hamilton's mother and they know about Hamilton. Kruger is impressed with little Hamilton. So they hire Hamilton to basically be their office manager. How old is he? 13, 14. Could you imagine hiring a kid to be an office manager of an international shipping conglomerate? Alexander Hamilton is off the charts. The man is nonstop, right? The kid is insane, as they say in the musical. This kid's insane, man. So um, when Hamilton's 14, uh, Beekman and Kruger go on an extended several-month trip and leave him in charge of the shipping business. Unbelievable. Now, things are finally looking up for Hamilton again, but then a hurricane strikes the island on 1772, and it's one of the worst recorded hurricanes uh, of, of the time. It levels almost every structure, including Kruger, Beekman and Kruger's office. So Hamilton is once again without a roof over his head. Now, Hamilton puts quill to paper, to parchment. And as they wrap in the musical, he had the skill with the quill, right? Hamilton could write. Uh, remember, this guy grows up reading Shakespeare and Alexander Pope, uh, two of the greatest wordsmiths who've ever lived. So Hamilton publishes poetry, but he also publishes in a newspaper an account of the hurricane. And it's gripping. It's done with kind of the eye of a meteorologist, the, the, the thought processes of a scientist, where this kid describes the, the almost biblical Old Testament wrath of this hurricane wreaking havoc. It's a remarkable document. Uh, some of the authorities on the island use Hamilton's essay on the hurricane to raise money for hurricane relief in the 1700s. I think it's absolutely poetic that Lin-Manuel Miranda would go to Puerto Rico to use the musical to raise money uh, for hurricane relief. Not that President Trump didn't do a good job when he was shooting baskets with rolls of paper towels. But um, so Hamilton's essay helps to raise money
for uh, hurricane relief. Now, in 1772, what they do as the musical raps is they take up a collection to send him to the mainland. So Hamilton's outgrown Nevis. What you're looking at now is a is a picture of some of the Jewish cemetery uh, on the island Nevis and, and St. Croix, where Hamilton was. There was a small Jewish community. It's difficult to say, but it's largely unkept. Uh, I asked a number of people there and on the cruise ships, um, is this ever kept up? They said only when maybe a group uh, from a synagogue goes there that they'll clean it up, but the authorities need to do a better job uh, with the Jewish cemetery. But some of the the, the dates on these uh, markers date from the time of Hamilton. So maybe the folks there knew uh, young Alexander Hamilton. So. Um, a ship uh, takes Hamilton to uh, Boston. He comes to America, 1772, then moves to New York City, almost around the time of the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. So he's imbued with patriotic uh, fervor. So here we go in the musical, there's a scene. I'm, I'm assuming that everybody has seen Hamilton. Uh, you know, that's like breathing and paying taxes these days. It's the third given in life that everybody's seen Hamilton. And I might add a fourth. You all have a child or grandchild that can rap the musical. Um, as a uh, professor, what's amazing to me is if I do, when I'm teaching the Constitution or when I get to the Federalist Papers, I just assume that's when all my students took a nap. And I kind of gave them that. But these days, invariably, students will raise their hand and say, Dr. Watson, the Federalist Papers, that's Hamilton's idea. And I'll go, you're right. And, and then one of the students will yell out, John Jay only wrote five before he got sick. And Mary's a John Jay fan, as am I. And I say, you're right, five, and he got sick. And another one to raise their hand and say, James Madison wrote 29. And I'll go, oh my gosh, you're right. And then somebody else will yell, Hamilton wrote 51. And I'll say, my gosh, you're right. So I want you all to think about this. 19-year-olds are now excited about talking about the Federalist Papers and actually want to learn about them. Why? because Lin-Manuel Miranda made a musical about Alexander Hamilton. So count this historian all in. I'm good to go with it. Um, by the way, I fact-checked the entire musical line by line. Yes, I actually did. Uh, and I'm telling you, it's 90% spot on. Um, after all, the musical is based on Ron Chernow's um, uh, great book on Hamilton, award-winning book. And Ron Chernow is, an, is a remarkable biographer and an impressive fellow. Uh, and I do not know Lin-Manuel Miranda. I know Sarah, uh, uh, who's on the call, met him, but I do not know Lin, uh, but I do know Ron Cherno. And he told me that Miranda had him involved in basically every scene in terms of how historically accurate is this. So it's remarkably accurate. Anyways, you're looking at the Aaron Burr character, Leslie Odom, and there's LMM, as my students say, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda as A.Ham, as of course, Everybody under 30 has to say these days. So um, he comes to America. He, when he moves to New York City, he, he moves in with a guy named Hercules Mulligan, uh, who's my son's favorite character in the musical. Hercules Mulligan was a real person. Uh, he was an Irish immigrant and a tailor, and he was active with the Sons of Liberty as they rap in the musical. I'm running with the Sons of Liberty, and I am loving it. He actually was. So there's another accurate part of the musical. And Hercules Mulligan appears to be the person who turned Alexander Hamilton on to this patriotic fervor. And Hamilton is in with both feet. Uh, he's, he's all in. Now, the other thing Hamilton wants to do is he wants to go to college. 
And remember, he's bookish. He wants an education. Uh, and he meets a fellow named Aaron Burr, and uh, Burr had gone to Princeton. So Hamilton wants to go to Princeton. He demands to meet with people and talk to them, but nobody will talk to him. So he's all hot and bothered and pissed off by it. Uh, so Hamilton hears from Hercules Mulligan about a really good college in uh, New York called King's College, which is today known as what? Columbia, right, Columbia. So Hamilton goes to King's College. He demands to meet with the president of the college. So think about it. As the musical says, how does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? Anyway, so Hamilton goes to um, he goes to King's College, demands to meet with the president, whose name is Miles Cooper. He meets with Miles Cooper and Cooper is so enamored, so blown away by Hamilton that he lets him go basically free of charge. I'm a father paying two tuitions right now, so a free ride to Columbia sounds pretty good to this underpaid professor. So um, Hamilton goes to King's. Uh, remember, his parents are Richard Burton and Liz Taylor, so he's the most handsome person anybody has met. He's one of the smartest. Hamilton is just oozing charisma. He's unbelievably unforgettable. So Hamilton's charismatic, handsome, smart, audacious, cocky, loud, you know, you can't forget the guy. So Cooper's blown away with him. What does Hamilton do when he's at um, uh, King's College? He does a couple things. Uh, number one, um, he, um, he goes out one day and oratory and uh, uh, rhetoric are, are high arts, as is pamphleteering. People would like Thomas Paine, Patrick Henry, they'd write a pamphlet, often called a broadside, and you tack it to a pub door and you share your political two cents. Also, people would get up under a tree, hang a lantern in the tree, kick over a soapbox, hear ye, hear ye, and they would give a speech. In the musical, there's a fellow named the Most Reverend Samuel Seabury in the musical. He was a real character. He was a famous orator and pamphleteer, but he was pro-crown. He was a royalist or a loyalist. And what we know from multiple accounts is one day Hamilton challenges him to a debate. And I'll let you guess who won that debate. This bastard teenage son of a whore, blah, 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 blah. Um, so um, Hamilton also starts writing pamphlets and he's getting a readership. So he's kind of a, a growing minor celebrity. Here's the other thing Hamilton does at King's. A rowdy mob shows up one day to apparently burn or attack the college. Maybe they're going to tar and feather Miles Cooper, the president, because he's a loyalist. You have to be a loyalist if you're the president of King's College. Um, Hamilton, even though he's a patriot, he risks his life. He holds off the mob and helps President Cooper to escape. Not bad for your freshman year. <laughs> I told my son that story when he, waited, when, he went, when he went away to college, and I said, no pressure. Um, the other thing Hamilton does is um, Hamilton always longed for a war. The musical even says he wished for a war. I knew it was the only way to rise up, rise up. So Hamilton wanted a war. Why? In his reading of history, he knew that uh, oftentimes, pardon the sexism of the old expression, the times make the man. So in a war, he could rise up. Hamilton also wanted to latch his wagon or star to a shooting star. He's looking for a father figure, the greatest man of his times. You know, that's uh, the old fashioned way of uh, making money other than marrying into money. 
So um, Hamilton, um, the war comes to New York City, right, everybody, in late summer of 1776, the Battle of Brooklyn, right? Battle of Brooklyn Heights. Uh, for the locals there, let me also say, also known as the Battle of Long Island, okay, uh, for the locals. Um, uh, working on my accent, uh, Mary. So um, at any rate, so uh, the battle, so Hamilton plays hooky and he and a couple of friends form an artillery unit and they make Hamilton the captain of this artillery unit. They go down to the battery, lower Manhattan. The British uh, are arriving with 32,000 men plus 9,000 Hessian mercenaries under General Howe and the Hessian leader, uh, Johann Gottlieb Rall. Uh, R-A-L-L, known as the Hessian Lion, one of the most feared warriors of the time. So uh, Hamilton's down there stealing cannons, firing them at the British Armada. This is suicidal. It's suicidal. The boys finally have to run and escape uh, because the British are coming ashore and they take Manhattan. George Washington is chased out of uh, New York. He's chased all the way to White Plains. Um, they're chasing Washington. He's leaving soldiers, wagons, artillery behind. It's desperate. Washington realizes if he keeps racing north, the British could theoretically chase him all the way to upstate New York at the Canadian border. So Washington pulls a rabbit out of his hat and swings around to the south and races the whole way through New Jersey. He throws the British off his scent, but not Rawl and the Hessians who chase him across New Jersey. Now, Thank goodness Governor Christie wasn't in office because the bridges were open. He was able to get out of New Jersey, uh, the George Washington Bridge, uh, and go across the Delaware River, which separates New Jersey from Pennsylvania, and then set up camp on the Pennsylvania side of the river. This is uh, around almost Christmas time, and Washington's army had gone from over 10,000, get this, to about 2,400, roughly half of them are not in a condition to fight. They're lacking shoes or powder or muskets or they're wounded. So the war looks like it's gonna end in a whimper. Hamilton is with Washington's army. Washington concocts a plan. He's gonna cross the Delaware on Christmas night and hit the Hessians at Trenton, catch them drunk and hung over from Christmas. And this crazy plan works. And one of the heroes of the Battle of Trenton is this kid from the West Indies, Hamilton. Um, who's manning artillery and blowing apart the Hessian compound. They kill Colonel Rawl. It's a great victory for Washington. He holds the army together. Washington wants to strike while the, you know, the fire's hot there, the iron's hot. So on January 3rd, 1777, just days after Trenton, he hits the British at Princeton. And one of the heroes of that is Hamilton again. This kid's insane, man, as they say in the musical. Um, so after that, Several officers, probably Henry Knox, uh, we know Nathaniel Green, and one or two other officers uh, make an overture to put Hamilton on their staff. He's so impressive, such a hero, so smart, so unforgettable. They want to put him on their staff. Washington says, no, he's on my staff. Washington makes Hamilton a colonel. And as you can see here on the slide and made famous by the musical, his right-hand man, boom. <laughs> so uh, Hamilton has made a colonel, lieutenant colonel, and is basically uh, uh, Washington's aide de camp. What does Hamilton do? Uh, he handles Washington's correspondence. Remember, he has the skill with the quill. 
Uh, he writes letters to Congress, writes Washington speeches. He's a liaison with the Continental Congress. He works with the quartermaster to try to keep the army fed and clothed. Um, also, the Spanish support the war. Washington doesn't habla espanol. Um, Hamilton's got that covered. Remember, he's multilingual. The French, as you all know, Lafayette and uh, Rochambeau and others fund the, uh, the French help fund the war. Washington doesn't parlez vous. Um, Hamilton's got that covered. Uh, the Dutch funded the war. Hamilton speaks uh, some Dutch. And Baron von Steuben, the great Prussian general and others come over to train our military. He doesn't speak English and Washington doesn't speak Prussian. You guessed Hamilton. So it's Hamilton, 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 and Hamilton. Uh, now, one of the things he wanted as a young man was a war, and he wanted to find a great man to tie his coat tie onto his coattails and ride him to the stars. Uh, Washington doesn't have children. His wife Martha had four kids, but all four would pass. Uh, George always longed for a son, that loyal son. He and Hamilton are the proper age apart. Washington always considered Hamilton a son even calls him son. Uh, Wash Hamilton calls Washington the father. So uh, Hamilton wants to ride someone, a greatest man's coattails to a fame and celebrity. George Washington, check, <laughs> check mark. Uh, so uh, uh, Hamilton's Washington's right-hand man, and he's much more of a son than a father. There's an artist uh, painting. Uh, I think the look of Washington is good. The look of Hamilton is good. The only problem was Hamilton was not that tall and Washington was a lot taller. Um, the four fellas, okay, one thing the musical has is a reoccurring theme, uh, is uh, uh, Hamilton had three best friends and they're in the musical, and this is in real life too, by the way. Uh, on the far left, uh, that's David Diggs, who's supposed to be uh, Lafayette. Uh, Lafayette was all of 18 years old when he's given command and is helping to win the war, which is extraordinary. Uh, I live uh, 17 miles from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, where the horrible shooting took place. And we have a lot of students from Stoneman Douglas. And after the shooting, I met with the students and tried to uh, tried to give them a bit of a pep talk. And one of the things I told them was uh, Lafayette and Hamilton were roughly your age when they were winning the war. Don't let anyone tell you you're too young to start a conversation on gun control. And I'll be darned if those kids didn't, not because of me, of course, but on their own. Um, the, the, the big guy with the, the, the skull cap on, that's supposed to be Hercules Mulligan, who was a real life character and also spied on behalf of Washington and stole British plans while he's uh, serving as a tailor for the commanders. The guy with his hand up, that's John Lawrence. He's the only one of these four fellas that wasn't an immigrant. Uh, Lawrence was from uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Ironically, he's, he's part of the Henry Lawrence family, one of the most prominent South Carolina families, slave-owning family. Here's the thing about John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton. One of the many reasons I like Hamilton, uh, named my son for him, was this. Um, Lawrence and Hamilton are hardcore abolitionists. As kids, they also believe in women's rights. As kids. These two guys are probably ahead of where we are as a country politically today. Um, they are very, very ahead of their times. So Lawrence would become Hamilton's best friend and also one of Washington's aides to camp. Uh, here's the four guys in real life. On the far left, that's the Marquis. And there's a, a 
a lovely uh, image of him, painting of him upstairs in the Francis Tavern. I always like that. Uh, that's uh, Hercules uh, next to him. The oval picture is John Lawrence, another handsome fellow like Hamilton there on the right. Uh, let me quick start moving. I'm, I'm about out of uh, time here. So the Battle of Yorktown, I'll say this and I'll bring it to a close. The Battle of Yorktown is arguably uh, uh, the pivotal battle of the war. This constitutes the beginning of the end for the British, uh, September, October, 1781. Do-do-do-do, if anybody's seen the musical, okay? There's my sound effect. All right, so um, at any rate, I love the scene in the Battle of Yorktown in, in, the, uh, in the Broadway musical. So Washington has a couple of victories and a lot of defeats. What he needs is one big W, one big win. And it comes against General Lord Cornwallis. Cornwallis is kicked out of South Carolina uh, by John Lawrence and Nathaniel Green. Here's the kicker. Four of the heroes who won the Battle of Yorktown were those four boys. And Washington calls these guys my military family. This is how he thinks of them. He sees them as sons. And of course, there's a great line in the musical when Washington is choked up and he gets his victory and he wants to thank these boys. And the boys say, immigrants, we get the job done. Uh, and of course the audience goes nuts uh, when they say that. So uh, three of the four were immigrants. So John Lawrence helps to kick Cornwallis out of South Carolina. Cornwallis races all the way to the Virginia coast with thousands of men, it's a large army. The plan is at the Virginia coast, the British whose headquarters are in New York City, uh, not far from Francis Tavern, the British are going to sail down to uh, Virginia, pick up Cornwallis's Navy and evacuate him. Here's what happens, though. Hercules Mulligan steals the plan. So now we know what they're going to do. Washington races his army double time, triple time, all the way to Virginia, and he captures the British army, Cornwallis, against the coast. Washington digs a trench in a semicircle, if you will, and now Cornwallis is trapped against the coast. They also parlay vous with Rochambeau and Admiral de Grasse, G-R-A-S-S-E. And the French Navy comes in from the West Indies and blockades the Virginia Straits and beats the British Navy. So now there's no escape. Cornwallis is trapped. Um, Washington starts the artillery barrage. So Hercules Mulligan and Lawrence did their job. What does Lafayette do? As they're each night they bomb and bomb and bomb uh, the British, then they dig the trenches closer and closer and closer. It's only a matter of time. So the British realize they're in trouble. Uh, and uh, Cornwallis assigns none other than the Green Dragon, Bannister Tarleton, one of the most capable and vicious and feared and dashing uh, British officers. I apologize for mentioning his name, Mel Gibson, not a fan. Uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot, uh, he was supposed to be the Desert Fox, Marion, Swamp Fox, I'm sorry, Swamp Fox Francis Marion. The dashing but dastardly British officer that fights him is supposed to be Bannister Tarleton. So Tarleton and the British have an important job. They need to find a way to sneak out of this trap and escape by the Chesapeake. Who's there? Lafayette, who beats him back into the box. Finally, it's time to charge. And who does Washington pick to win the war? Hamilton. Um, so Hamilton has to go. And what it is, is the British have some redoubts, some artillery batteries 
outside of the compound, which prevents us from getting too close as we keep getting closer and closer because we're shelled by the artillery. So Hamilton at night has to, no powder, no bullets in the guns. That's why he raps, take the bullet out your gun, take the bullet out your gun. We move undercover and we move as one, blah, blah, blah. So um, uh, what they have to do with muskets and swords, they have to overrun these British outposts and uh, Hamilton leads the charge and in hand-to-hand -hand combat kills the British. He can turn the cannons around and fire them, boom, right into the British fort. Lafayette, I mean, uh, Cornwallis knows it's all over. He has to surrender. And of course, four of the heroes are those four young boys, including Hamilton. And that's pretty much the beginning of the end of the war. There's the actual surrender. And you can see Rochambeau and Cornwallis and, and Washington and Hamilton and everybody in there. Now, um, Cornwallis was so ashamed and embarrassed that he orders his band to play the drunk British tavern song, The World Turned Upside Down. And when I was being a nerdy historian and fact checking this four more years ago, when I got to that point, I almost fell out of my chair because in the real world, Cornwallis plays The World Turned Upside Down. And that's the music that Lin-Manuel Miranda used for the surrender. Wow. Um, he married, of course, Eliza uh, uh, Schuyler uh, and the Schuyler sisters, uh, uh, Angelica, the oldest, uh, Eliza, and Marguerite, the youngest, a.k.a. and Peggy. Um, so those are the Schuyler sisters uh, who were impressive women. Uh, women were not to play chess back at that time. I've written a few books about this time period. Women were not seen as intelligent enough to play chess. This is how sexist men were. Um, let me just say one thing about the Schuyler sisters. None other than another one of my heroes, Ben Franklin, met them and taught them to play chess. So if they're smart enough for Ben Franklin, they're impressive. Um, there's Eliza in real life, uh, who was an incredible woman. She and Hamilton would have eight kids, uh, buried their first one, Philip, who died in a duel, fought by a scoundrel named George Eaker, who instead of counting to 10 and shot, he, they count to about seven and he kills Hamilton's son. Uh, the cabinet, I'm going to skip that because I think I'm out of time. Um, uh, Hamilton and Jefferson did not get along. Let me just uh, get to the end here. That's Hamilton's house. Uh, quiet uptown. Um, and the duel. So as uh, notice, we have someone here on this uh, call from near next to Weehawken. That's where the duel was fought. Dawn, guns drawn. Okay, July 11th, 1804. Now, Dueling was actually somewhat common, which is shocking. Uh, talk about natural selection, right? Crazy. Um, it's the way gentlemen solve their disputes. Um, now, Hamilton was a hothead and was involved in a couple of duels in one capacity or another. Um, but the way it would work is if I want to challenge Scott, and I wouldn't because he's the director of a place that I love and I want to come back. But if I want to challenge Scott to a duel, what I would say to him is, sir, I demand satisfaction. And then Scott would say to me, well, then, sir, I will see you on the field of honor. And I would say dawn, and he would say guns drawn. So they actually, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a good job of replicating this. And there are all sorts of rules to dueling. Uh, Scott would have a second, and I would have a second. Scott's going to pick Mary, and I got Sarah. So you better pick your friends wisely, because if I'm a coward, then guess who has to go? Um, you would stand a certain number of feet apart. You got a doctor, the whole nine yards. And in the musical, I thought it was clever that they put this into the 10 dual commandments. Uh, so they actually uh, put the rules into a rap song. 
So you stood about 24 feet apart. They either counted to 10 or the official dropped a hanky and you shot. Hamilton, although he was a good shot, remember he was a heck of a soldier. Uh, Hamilton says that he will not shoot uh, Burr. Apparently Burr doesn't get the memo um, and Burr shoots Hamilton. Uh, why? We're not 100% certain. My theory is Burr looks across the 24 feet and he sees someone who's smarter than him, more successful than him, more handsome than him, and who denied Burr everything he wanted. Burr wanted to be Washington's aide. Washington picks Hamilton. Burr wants to be the hero of the war. Hamilton's the hero of the war. Burr moves to New York City and is the top lawyer, all the highest paid clients, until Hamilton moves in and opens up a law firm down the street. Then they all go to Hamilton. They even fought over women. Burr, kind of a sexist and a narcissist, if you could imagine that for a politician. Uh, Burr considers himself the ladies' man. Uh, you know, all the women love Burr until Alexander Clooney uh, moves into New York City. So Burr's actually upset uh, over, over this. These two guys are like freshmen pledging a fraternity for crying out loud. So I think Burr looks across at Hamilton and just lost it and shot him. The bullet cuts through vital organs, hits the spine. Hamilton falls backwards. As he's falling backward, he squeezes a shot off involuntarily, and he's paralyzed from the waist down and unconscious. They row him across the river. As he comes to and regains consciousness, he tells them, be careful, I have not discharged my gun. He didn't even realize he shot it, so he was unconscious that quickly. Uh, Hamilton dies the next day. Here's a scene from the duel. This is in your city of New York, right there at the Historical Society. Uh, Hamilton was wearing glasses, of course, although they said Hamilton had the gun pointed in the air, so that might be inaccurate. Uh, Hamilton's legacy is extraordinary. He's the founder that doesn't live to see 50, but uh, he's the one who negotiates the Jay Treaty with John Jay. Uh, Hamilton and John Jay create the first abolitionist society, the New York Society for Manumission. And since Mary is a Jay fan, I threw those two in just for her. Um, Hamilton creates the Coast Guard. He uh, founds the New York Post, which, uh, you know, today is not really a paper, but back then it was real. Um, Hamilton writes Washington's farewell address, which I still make my students read, considered one of the greatest addresses. And they actually wrap or read part of it in the musical. Um, Hamilton also remembers the Jewish community that helped save his life and educate him as a child. What Hamilton does as a lawyer, he does pro bono work. If you're a former slave and you need help, Hamilton. A woman who can't get legal representation, Hamilton. And that leads to the Mariah Reynolds affair. Uh, but um, also, if you're Jewish and you can't get legal help, Hamilton. The largest lawsuit won in that post-war, the Revolutionary War ends in 1783. In that period after the war, it appears that we know of. The largest lawsuit, at least in New York City, was run won by a French Jew named Le Guen, G-U-E-N, who represented him when he couldn't get representation, Hamilton. And there's letters that survive from Jews, immigrants, and others who write to Hamilton and say, we can't get help, we're desperate, but we heard about you. So the word was out, Hamilton walked the talk. I uh, never forgot where he came from. Also, King's College turns into Columbia College, and uh, Hamilton is asked to redraw the charter. And when he does, he says, anyone is admitted uh, to Columbia. And he gets a friend of his named Gershon, Seixas, pardon my Portuguese, S-E-I-X-A-S, 
who's a Sephardic Jew, uh, the folks who saved Hamilton. So uh, we know a lot of this from Eliza. She lives in a day and age when people live to be 30 or 40. She lives to be 97, 50 years beyond losing Hamilton. And she and her children collect Hamilton's letters and organize them much like an archivist or a librarian would. And we consequently have a great treasure trove. I'll leave you with this. Um, I do know Ron Chernow, so I asked him the story, how on earth did this musical happen? So here's what he told me. He said, one day, Chernow lived in Brooklyn. One day he said, I got a call from um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who says, you know, my wife and I went to Mexico. I think it was Acapulco, Chernow told me. And I took your book, Hamilton, along. I couldn't put it down, changed my life. I've got to meet with you. Chernow says, okay. Miranda comes over and says, listen, I want to make a hip hop rap Broadway musical with a, with a black George Washington, a Puerto Rican Hamilton, and an Asian Mrs. Hamilton. And Cherno told me, he said to Miranda, quote unquote, that's the dumbest damn thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but uh, Hamilton, Miranda pitches and pitches and pitches the idea. Cherno says, look, I don't understand rap, hip hop. I don't know. Good luck. And Miranda says, can I say do one more thing? And off the cuff, he raps that famous uh, uh, beginning uh, of the musical, the How Does a Bastard Orphan. Uh, and Cherno says, he said to Miranda, he said, my God, that's brilliant. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Cherno said, I'm on board. Uh, I'm on board the musical. So um, so that's the, the short story of it. And I'm happy to uh, uh, to take questions uh, and, uh, and, and, and comments and criticisms. Thank you, that was wonderful. Um, I would just like to point out the importance of the role of women in all of these important men's lives and how much they need to be told. There's no question about that. One of the first books I wrote when I became a professor was about the first ladies and about the fingerprints all over the history of power. And uh, from Martha Washington all the way up, we've had a lot of really capable and impressive first ladies uh, and to help what I always call the wife made men of history. So uh, there we go. Yup. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with the first question. Uh, the new research that came out from the Schuyler Mansion the last couple of weeks about Hamilton being an enslaver. What are your thoughts on that research? Yeah. So uh, the, 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 the virtue and the vice, I guess, the beauty and the headache of all this is there's more we don't know about the young Hamilton than we do know. And I tried to piece together uh, those pieces of the puzzle at the beginning. That's a bit ambitious by me, but, but uh, you know, we don't know a lot about it. Uh, no, I defend Alexander Hamilton. He has several writings clearly showing that he was an abolitionist. John Jay uh, was hardcore about his abolition and his progressive views on all folks. And Jay thought the world of Hamilton and Hamilton thought the world of Jay and they worked together on it. The only other framers that you could really put in league with Hamilton and Jay in terms of being advocates for ending slavery would be a John Adams and a Ben Franklin. Uh, those four seem to stand alone in my mind. Now, what the- Had Lawrence of lived, of course. I'm sorry? Had Lawrence lived, of course. John Lawrence was maybe, yeah, maybe even ahead of Hamilton. Uh, he was yeah. off the chart, but he's killed in 1782 uh, toward the end of the war. Typical John Lawrence, typical Hamilton fashion. He's leading his men from the front. 
you know, even though he's a colonel, um, but a, a bold and brave and impressive fellow. But um, here's the rap on Hamilton. One is that uh, when he was younger in, in, in the islands, the, the Kruger, Beekman, a lot of the shipping companies dealt with slaves and Hamilton worked for them. I would remind people that he's 13, 14, he was starving, orphaned, and he worked and did what he could. Some of the trade that Hamilton worked with later in his life, there were slaves. Um, there were slaves tied to some of those businesses. So, yeah, it's one of these things, you know, I try to shop my conscience. You know, I buy Ben and Jerry's and I support whether it's Tom's Shoes or Patagonia. You know, and I try to boycott the usual Nestle and Chick-fil-A and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while, it'll be my birthday and somebody will buy me a leather belt. There we go. Or someone will come to class and say, here, Dr. Watson, we got you a lemonade from Chick-fil-A. I drink it. So Hamilton, I think, did the best he could. And I think his record is so far ahead of its time. And I think we have to be careful using a 2020 assessment to judge someone who lived in the 1700s. So uh, I'm, I'm OK with the scholarship that has come out. And I think Hamilton on balance uh, holds up. Awesome. Uh, we saw a few questions about everybody asking what happened to Hamilton's siblings after okay. he left. Good. So James, um, you know, whites did not work beside slaves. Um, James worked next to free blacks and slaves. Uh, so that gives you some sense of, of, I guess, the very low rung on the totem pole in such a racist society. James was a manual laborer. Uh, he worked with his hands. He did various carpentry and various types of jobs uh, throughout his life and largely disappears from the pages of history. Alexander Hamilton wrote to James and his father, the other James, uh, asking them to come to New York, you know, come to Philly, come live with them. And uh, they don't, which is just really odd. So, um, yeah, James is a pretty obscure character. And what, the way I attribute it is this. Um, Alexander Hamilton was his mother's son, and James was his father's son. Uh, James takes after the father. Uh, the little bit we know about both of them, they seem to be two peas in a pod. Uh, Alexander takes after his mother, uh, uh, smart, uh, charming, uh, good-looking, uh, a, a serious appetite, if you know what I mean, uh, opinionated. So uh, Hamilton is, is his mother's son, and James was his father's son. Wonderful. Crystal asked, and this is a great question. Uh, I've never seen any evidence of Lawrence being an advocate for women's rights. Can I ask for a source for that? I'd love to read about it. And I yeah, sure. um, support that question. Good. Um, so I've done lots of reading on Hamilton um, uh, and Lawrence, and I don't have it on the top of my head. Um, I would say start with Richard Brookheiser's book. Start with the, uh, Ron Chernow's book. There's some really good sources on Hamilton. Lawrence and Hamilton were prolific letter writers. They wrote back and forth all the time. Lawrence and Hamilton were both aides de camp to Washington. Hamilton stayed in camp. Lawrence went around meeting with generals. How's the supply line? So Lawrence was like the gopher. And they wrote back and forth. And in that, they discussed women a lot. And what you can do when you read the Lawrence and Hamilton letters, there's two things they talk about women. On one hand, they are young men who are just going wild. It's like they had a weekend in Vegas um, talking back and forth. On the other hand, they talk about their great respect for women and they appreciate intelligent women and they want women to have a better life and better rights. 
So the, the Lawrence and Hamilton letters, there's one letter, uh, and I guess, uh, you know, I don't know how much of it I should say, but uh, Hamilton is writing the Lawrence, and he's upset because he wants to go meet women, and Lawrence is meeting women all over the place, and <laughs> Lawrence is saying to Hamilton that, you know, the best-looking women and the women that are best in bed are from my native South Carolina is basically what he's saying. So Hamilton is writing saying, I've got to get to South Carolina. I've got to get to South Carolina. And then he has a, a line. He says to Lawrence, something to the effect of, um, you know, tell everybody about me and be sure to tell them about the legendary size of my nose is what he says. So in a way, they're two teenage boys uh, who are just, and it's during a war and they don't know that they're going to live and it's bravado and it's a lot of raunchy talk and I'm a feminist and it's, it's never justified. But on the other hand, they, they do hold women in high reverence and they, 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 they want better lives for women. So I'd suggest those two books and, and, and the Lawrence and Hamilton letters. Uh, a guy named Surrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, -T, uh, through Columbia University has edited all however many volumes of Hamilton's correspondence so in Surrett's uh, correspondence, you'll find uh, uh, references to uh, Lawrence and Hamilton's view on women and on abolition. See, you think that they're great men because they're 19 and 20 and they're starting this revolution, but they're always frat bros at heart. You know, boys you know, goes boys. Back to that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, great men are oftentimes complicated when men as are great women. And as somebody who's written about a lot of leaders in history, uh, a lot of them are complicated and for everything you love about them, there's something you don't love about them. And Hamilton clearly fits in that. Uh, my line I always say is it's easy to love Hamilton. It's hard to like him, uh, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, ben, even Ben Franklin misbehaved and all that. And, and, you know, that, that, and of course, Washington was a slave owner and, and Jefferson was a hypocrite and a slave owner. So, um, uh, clearly, we need to include the uh, warts and pimples of history, along with the flattering portrayals. As an historian, I always say that, you know, um, when if I finish a lecture on slavery or the Holocaust and you can eat lunch, I haven't done a good job. You need to be sick to the stomach. So, um, yeah, we do need to present the good side and the bad side. And Hamilton was not different. Uh, it's rare to find someone like, let's say, a Harry Truman who was virtually incapable of telling a lie and was faithful to the first woman he ever kissed um, and treated everyone with dignity and kindness. Uh, he's an anomaly in the history books. So, yeah. uh, Stephen asks, what was the relationship with Hamilton and the Jewish community in America? Good. So uh, Hamilton has, a, there's a letter that survived where Hamilton is writing of the Jewish people, and I wish I had memorized it. I try to memorize a lot of letters and quotes and battle counts and, 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 and even the raps in the musical. <laughs> Most of my lectures, I try to memorize several quotes for, to help reinforce the lecture. It's something, this is not direct, it's something like this. He says, uh, you know, the Jewish people have survived, you know, the worst that the world has thrown at them. They're truly the chosen people, that they've done extraordinary things. And when you read it, it's clear that Hamilton had great reverence for this community in this six by nine mile rock that gives him an education and believed in him. And again, from Lou Gouin, uh, the Frenchman that I told you about, who is Jewish, to the um, uh, Gershon Seychas, the uh, uh, fellow who's Portuguese, uh, and, and, um, 
that Hamilton maintains this relationship with the Jewish community. Another uh, friend, a colleague of Hamilton's, was none other than the great Jewish financier, Haim Solomon. Haim Solomon, who helped finance the war. And in some ways, Solomon and Hamilton are two peas in a pod. They both are, speak six, seven, eight languages. They're both mathematical and financial prodigies. I mean, they'd be, you know, math or physics triple majors today. Uh, both of them were, were sharp in that respect. They both had traveled widely. Um, and um, Haim Solomon had escaped uh, anti-Semitic persecution and came to America, you know, kind of like Hamilton escaped his upbringing. And Hamilton and Solomon worked together to fund the war. And there's a wonderful um, Solomon at the end of the war, the, the, the Continental Congress is contemplating, you know, uh, one lesson from history is we always fail to learn the lessons from history as soon as we finish fighting a war or getting over an, an event. The Continental Congress is contemplating a form of a religious loyalty oath. You don't enjoy full enfranchisement unless if you're a Christian. You know, and, and part of this came out of, I regret to say, because I'm a native Pennsylvanian, part of this came out of Philly and Pennsylvania to suppress the Quakers uh, and other groups. So Solomon is meeting with the Continental Congress to try to talk them out of that. And this is a man who, you know, lent his one of his properties in Philadelphia to James Wilson and James Madison. This is a man who helps finance the war. Uh, but yet they don't listen to Haim Solomon. Hamilton gets, excuse me, Haim Solomon asks Hamilton if he would go in on his behalf and try to get the, the Continental Congress to stop this religious loyalty oath. Hamilton goes in with James Wilson from Pennsylvania, James Madison, and they bring out the heavy artillery, G. Wash, the big dog himself, Washington, and the Congress ends this. So uh, this, I think, uh, beyond that, we don't know a lot much more, more about that than what I just said. But what we know is that I think it points to Hamilton's relationship with Haim Solomon. So, yeah, his Jewish roots, you might say, uh, in uh, Nevis and, and, and so for St. Croix, uh, it's a lifelong relationship. Uh, this is my favorite question to ask. It is also your last question, so no pressure. <laughs> if you could have dinner with anybody in our historic long room, who would it be and why? I think oh, I know the answer. I think I know the answer. I love this. So... I'm a nerd who plays that history dinner party and whomever asked the question, welcome to the club. Thank you for asking it. Yes, <laughs> I, uh, ben Franklin and Leonardo da Vinci are, are in my dinner party. No question about it. You know, Leonardo <laughs> is the great polymath, pardon the sexism, Renaissance man. You know, they always say Ben Franklin was America's Leonardo. I've always said that Leonardo was Italy's Ben Franklin. Um, but I would throw, uh, I'd throw G. Wash in there just because I'd want to see if his charisma was that overwhelming, uh, you got to put Abe Lincoln in, in that in that mix somewhere. Uh, my hero is Harry Truman. So I had to say Harry Truman. He's my hero. Probably the reason I do what I do. And, you know, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I think Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth would be at my dinner party because Harriet Tubman was didn't even weigh a buck. And she was so courageous. You know, if you put Harriet Tubman up against the rock, my money's on Harriet Tubman every time. Um, and uh, if you think about that Underground Railroad, on multiple trips, surely, surely, there were multiple men that said, we cannot take another step. And Harriet Tubman surely confronted them and said, you'll keep walking. 
and we know that she get, she delivered the cargo. Um, and Sojourner Truth, one of my favorite speeches and poems is Ain't I a Woman? So check it out from Sojourner Truth, a great former slave, a poet and orator. And that poem is so damn powerful that I think she must have just dripped charisma. So that would be my dinner party. Let me throw it back at you, Mary, and ask who would be someone on your dinner party? Ugh, it's always a Sam Francis because we know so little about him. I've always, we just, we have like five main questions that we need him to ask and then like he can leave and go about his day. But I think there's just too many ghosts at Francis Tavern that if they would all just like to sit down and address themselves as to we're the ones who annoy you in your office while you're trying to work, that would be great. Well, if, if I could, if, if your dinner party was from the ghost from Francis Tavern, I would have been at George Fa George's farewell when he <laughs> took all the officers by the hand and bid them adieu. And I would have been there and I would have been the one crying. So oh, it's that would be my dinner party. That I can't imagine. We've tried to figure out who was there and kind of figure out who was even in New York City at the time and who would have done it. And you well, wish that all of these great men would have just written down a couple of sentences about their day. Talmadge is the only one who wrote the, uh, the uh, yeah. uh, Benjamin Talmadge. You know, what's odd is um, someone like a Henry Knox idolized Washington. My guess is he wrote it down and it's lost. Weird. Guesses he would have written it down. I've been trying to figure all of these things out for years. So your best, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, every year during the farewell, I do a little bit more of research and I get a little bit closer. I'm, I'm able to cut off a couple of people from the list, which is great, but somebody so should have written know, something down. Let me close by plugging Francis Tavern that you have the unveiling of the movie, a new movie about that farewell dinner party, right? Yes, we do. And we I went digital this year. Good. Someone named Apollo said they'd want Talmadge at their dinner party. I like that. I like that. So I want to thank everybody and thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you, Mary. Thank you, Sarah. And I want to thank everybody for supporting Francis Tavern and uh, coming out on Zoom. Uh, you know, this is the Brady Bunch, in my opinion. <laughs> it drives me nuts for Zoom, but um, uh, coming out. And uh, hope you enjoyed the lecture. Uh, the beginning part was challenging because it's just... It's like one piece here, one piece there, and we're missing all the other pieces of the puzzle. So thanks, everybody. Yep. Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you, Mary, for doing our wonderful Q&A. Thank you all for visiting. Um, as we just plugged a moment ago, Washington's Farewell, the anniversary of his farewell to his officers, coming up on December 4th. You can visit our website to get a ticket to our virtual screening of the premiere they're going to have a Q&A with some of the reenactors who know Washington best. Um, so check that out. You can also follow us on social media or join our mailing list to stay up to date on all of our events. If you enjoyed Robert's talk, he will be joining us again in a few months on a different topic. So you can look forward to that. Thank you to those of you who have donated. You are helping keep us going. If you wish to donate, you can visit our website, francistavernmuseum.org. I think that's everything. Thank you all for spending your evening, afternoon, night with us. And hopefully we will see you again in a few weeks for our next set of events and lectures. Have a great evening. Peace.